Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of 168,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast, featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Dioro. Thank you, Darlene. For our guest today, please welcome Christopher Wozni, principal of CAW Architects. Chris directs the firm's higher education work, including more than 60 projects at Stanford University, UC Berkeley, and UC Santa Cruz. Chris also relishes the challenges of finding appropriate and distinctive design responses within established campuses. His work includes large-scale renovations and adaptive reuse projects on historic buildings as well as new buildings. Chris is also on the faculty of the Architectural Design Program at Stanford University. For more information, feel free to visit www.cawarchitects.com. That's www.cawarchitects.com. Hello, Chris. We're honored and thrilled to have you on the Modern Architect radio show. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. I'm, oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you, especially for the tour of your um, offices. Uh, fantastic. But we'll, I like to start with the early inspirations, if you will. What inspired you, at least as far back as you can recall, to be an architect, do what you, it is that you do, if you can you know, recall a liberty to share with us what, what you, uh, your experience may have been that I distinctly remember early reading with my mom who taught me how to read and we would read about, you know, the great cathedrals and building the pyramids and things like that. Always like to tinker and build things and have a lifetime fascination with heavy construction equipment that persists to this day. <laughs> Those early interests kind of were submerged for a few years when I was in high school and even college. I'm a proud English major graduate from Stanford, class of 80. Like a lot of humanities kids in those days, in the late 70s, the fallback was to go to law school. (laughs) That was was the safety (laughs) valve that kept the parents at bay. (laughs) I had a a pretty broad major of uh, kind of any humanities or, or arts class I wanted to take, I could fit within my English major umbrella. And at the end of my junior year, I took a architectural history class from Paul Turner, who oh, was Paul, a, yes, a, right. yeah. a now emeritus professor in the Cummings Art Building down in the basement. And you go, as is the the practice in, in architectural history classes, you go and there's the two slides side by side in a darkened room. 
And by the third class, I'm not exaggerating, a cartoon light bulb went on (laughs) over my head. And and I said, well, that's it. I'm going to be an architect. Uh, you know, I don't want that to sound full of hubris after looking at, you know, the great yeah. works of, you know, Roman architecture, like, oh, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. But nevertheless, it was literally a switch went off in my brain and I called my mother up. Uh, oh, I want to hear this. Still I'm my, still my biggest fan. And, and she was, oh, honey, that's wonderful. You're going to be great. <laughs> And oh, then cool. I called my dad, who was a, an engineer in a, in a very fine one, and he uh, there was a long pause, and he said, uh, "What makes you think you'd be any good at that?" <laughs> really, <laughs> which, an engineer, huh? which was a yeah. completely valid question because yeah. I did not have a artistic background. I didn't know how to draw. I, did, I was on the other side of the brain. I was okay. a kind of a reader and a writer, and a you know, I was a humanities kid. It was a totally valid question, and I had to go about sort of retooling my brain to get it to function in a kind of a visual way. Literally taking mm-hmm. drawing classes when when I graduated from college, and you know, taking the classic drawing classes, yeah. taking calculus at Foothill College, and oh. Did <laughs> you really filling okay. in some of the blanks that I hadn't uh, accounted for in my undergraduate education, and. Um, was fortunate enough to get into the master's program at Berkeley and um, had a very, very steep learning curve there. Just, again, this kind of retooling of the brain and just have kind of had been at it ever since. It's interesting that you have a... There was a true epiphany. Yeah, well, that epiphany is, I I, uh, really caught that you had humanities focus. So in essence, you still do. Let me correct me if I'm wrong, but you're still projecting, and I know before we, uh, we started the show... We're looking at a lot of the people and the models that we'll get into, and we notice there's always people involved. And then before we even got on the show on, on your whiteboard, mm-hmm. you shared with the, I said, "Oh, I really like the rendering of the of people and the structure." And you shared with us that, yeah, that's that's what you you know you just recently did. So the, I, I see kind of this humanities focus still, even though you're within architecture and within the built environment. And maybe I'm reaching, but no, no, I, I don't okay. think you are. I, I, sometimes think that I use the uh, skills and, and thought process that I kind of studied as an undergraduate as much, if not more, than my graduate you know, really? training. Okay. Uh, you end up doing a lot of speaking and writing and, and communicating your ideas to clients and to other groups. And to be able to put two words together in a sentence, uh, hopefully I'm doing that now. <laughs> We still have time. We still have time. Uh, has served me well, and in, in, especially when you become in a leadership position, you end up spending maybe more time talking than drawing, which is, okay. is a mixed blessing. But I do feel that having a background in reading and writing you know, at a fairly intense level has served me well. And, and, and to your point about sort of people in the projects, that is, I think, just at the heart of uh, my training, especially at Berkeley in the mid-80s. It was just ingrained in you that that you were building spaces for humans to inhabit in wonderful ways, whether they're working or playing or uh, watching a performance or 
you know, working out that it that it's all about the person who it is that's going to use these spaces. I, I hate the word users. Okay. That, that's the one of the euphemisms that in architecture is like, well, the, who are the users? Which sounds <laughs> such. Yeah. Uh, what, what what do you like to use? You it's know? just who are the people? Who, who are the people? Who are yeah. who are the humans that are, are going to inhabit this space? Yeah. I had a powerful instructor mentor in at Berkeley named Donlin Linden who was part of a very renowned firm, MLTW, of most renowned for Sea Ranch, the early okay. buildings at Sea yeah. Ranch. And he was a very, very insightful and forceful professor. And he just instilled in all of us that, you know, it was all about the experience of how people are going to enjoy and inhabit your buildings. And those lessons have persisted. So we have people in all our renderings and all our models. Now, that's not uncommon. Mm -hmm. I think any competent architect is going to do that. But for me, it's essential. It's I feel my train, my, yeah. my professor is sort of perched on my shoulder every time I, <laughs> I, see him there. I diverge from that. Kind of an Obi-Wan Kenobi floating, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I see them. So you really do have, a, and obviously, how did you become involved so much with the education and institutions of education and higher learning? Was that by choice, kind of backed into it or both? Or uh, the, the trajectory of this firm, yeah. which started in 1994, was in the initial days survival. Really? <laughs> okay. We would just chase everything that looked like a job. <laughs> okay. Um, we were extraordinarily fortunate to be given an opportunity to start working at Stanford in very early on in 1995. Stanford has, has been kind of the mothership client to our office f for now almost 23 years. And we started out small. Our first job was renovating a, an old frat house Did you, uh, over, over a, of a summer break. <laughs> and then we've gradually kind of moved up in complexity and the importance of the project. I particularly love working there for a variety of reasons. First, it's my alma mater. There's yeah. a sort of a thrill that goes with that. We work at UC Berkeley too, yes. so I, I work at yeah. both of my alma maters, and it's there's a, a thrill that that uh, it's an yeah. honest to god sort of. Um, so your heart's really into it. Yeah, yeah, it's very easy to put your heart behind yeah. those projects, and both campuses are so extraordinary as as places and as complex organisms. The stakes are just so high that you, if you're going to burnish a little square of one of those campuses, whether it's a new building or whether it's fixing up a beautiful old one or repurposing one that was used for something else, you better get it right. So hence the iterations that we were talking about yes. on our little tour. As far as education and our firm, our practice, once we started working out at the universities, we discovered that we... It, it fits our sensibilities and our talents. First of all, the, the clients are professional. All of the people we work with at universities are trained construction folks or architects. And so they're, they're very sophisticated. They're very demanding. But you don't have to explain the process to them. They, 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 you get a little spoiled, quite frankly, when you, when you work in the civilian world. And you, <laughs> and you have to explain. Totally get what you mean. There's something yeah. called a change order. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we get to do a, a variety of building types uh, working. I mean, if you think of a campus, uh, especially a university campus, it's almost like a microcosm of a city. It's yeah. got almost one of everything that you would find in, in a small town. 
And so we've gotten to work on performance spaces, athletic spaces, classrooms, offices, residences, kind of everything in between. And so there's variety of project type within a particular client type, yeah. which we love. About 15 years ago, um, we brought on a, a new partner, Brent McClure, who uh, specializes in our K through 12 educational okay. work. And he is. Are they local or? We work from Napa Valley to Monterey, occasionally okay. in Southern California. I'd say within a hundred mile radius okay. is is pretty much our our sweet spot. And Brent's grown that uh, really substantially. So we're doing. Uh, we haven't done a campus from the ground up yet, but we're doing substantial interventions into existing campuses. And much like university campuses, you you have to not only solve your particular program, but we always look to try and make outdoor spaces or entry sequences or parts of the campus that are beyond the program of the building that we're working in have our building improve those spaces or some in some cases create those spaces. And so that's another thing that we've learned from working at places like Stanford and Berkeley is that this kind of a take a bigger view, zoom out a little bit and, and try to not only get your part right, but improve the, the space between the buildings, which is often the most powerful experience of a campus is the space between yeah, the buildings. I like that, the space between the buildings. Yeah, share it with us. Keep, uh, that, that's, just, yeah. that's something that the Stanford University architects and landscape architects have, have kind of drilled into our heads is that the oftentimes the most memorable experiences and places that people take away from a campus are the, the quadrangles and the courtyards and the experience of moving through them maybe less so than the, the classroom that they sit in. Even if it's a brilliant lecture, the, that room is probably not as memorable as the space outside where you spill out and you're in the arcades at Stanford or you're in one of the larger quads moving to one of the smaller courtyards. So the project that we looked at that, that we just finished with William Ron's office in Boston for the Hoover Institution creates a couple of wonderful outdoor spaces, kind of a shady grove informal courtyard and then an event space that's quite a bit more protected mm -hmm. and claimed. And we work hand-in-hand -hand with our landscape architect colleagues, and even though they probably have primary responsibility for those spaces, we're the ones kind of shaping the basic parameters of them and the outline and the, the spatial qualities that they work within. Excellent. Let's talk back with, about this uh, when we return. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Teach for America is a national core of outstanding recent college graduates and professionals who commit to teaching for two years in urban and rural public schools in lower income areas nationwide. If you're a college senior interested in being part of this core, or if you'd like to help support the program, visit teachforamerica.org. We're talking today with Chris Wozni, founding principal of CAW Architects. For more information, Feel free to visit www.cawarchitects.com. That's C-A-W-Architects.com. Chris, going back to your, your English major, I'm loving your words, not just the, obviously the projects you're doing, but you spill out into the crop, into the quad, burnish a square. And you're just talking about the space between and how vital it is. Can you share with us more? You know, I love hearing the importance of that space. Uh, the outdoor space yes. on campuses. I'll give you an example. 
a project that we're working on right now in Monterey for a high school where we were asked to put in a building with five classrooms and a kind of a flexible maker space. And they didn't quite know where it fit. And we played around with a lot of alternatives. And we've, we finally came up with one that, and, and there's a football stadium kind of at the one end of the, our potential site. And we ended up actually cantilevering this building over kind of it perched above the the rim of the stadium and there's a fire lane and some complicated things that had to go underneath this. And it, what we were able to do in kind of one fell swoop by sort of sliding this building out over the, this uh, rim road and the, and the stadium is we were able to create a, a new entrance to the campus, a drop off and a, a more gracious entrance, a, an accessible entrance. So someone who, who needed to use a wheelchair or, or, or couldn't navigate stairs could have a, a gracious ramp that came in the same way as everybody else. And then once you got to the top of this, this climb, and it's a pretty steep site, by sliding this building down, we were able to create kind of a new center for the campus, a place where, you know, kids would come out and have lunch and hang out at, between classes. And again, this idea that, of course, the mission-critical aspect of education is what you learn in the classroom, but, but the kind of the social and the uh, emotional part of, of one's educational experience oftentimes is, is what happens in the space between the buildings. And... You know, I sound maybe more like a landscape architect here, and and we, we, God knows what we've been well trained by the talented landscape people that we work with all the time, and have really tried to soak up their sensibilities of how once these spaces are framed by the massing of the buildings, how humanize them and give you know sunny spots and shady spots and places to congregate. It's um. It's a it's a it's a basic palette of of moves um, that nevertheless are elusive. Sometimes. Oh, it, Chris, your word choice is just awesome because they they shape the visual. At least they frame your buildings just by your choice of words. And I'm, I'm I don't know, it's kind of uh, catching in our interviews. Like, yeah, the words are shaping your buildings in essence because you actually have a dialogue in your own mind before you share it and express it with your prospective clients. Is that a bit of a reach or no? There's usually try to, we try to reach for a big idea or a narrative for a project of, of maybe one or two or three big moves that we're trying to do, obviously solve the program in a gracious and and beautiful way, and then try to fit something else in that maybe the client wasn't even expecting. We've been very successful in doing that with, especially in our public high school work, our clients are very, they're surprised and grateful. They're like, oh, we didn't ask for a new entrance, and there it is, and kind of no extra charge. Um, That's outstanding. We're very, very proud of our, our work in the public school arena. A, a lot of our the colleagues Rightfully in so. the That's profession that I, that I really respect tend to work in the independent school market because there's usually uh, more money and and there's oftentimes a more ambitious uh, set of goals. And I think we've proven that in the public school arena, even with the challenges of the public bidding arrangements and all the contracting codes that leave you with sometimes not the best contractors in the business, even within those constraints and sometimes pretty, pretty lean budgets, we've been able to create some really beautiful projects that are 
as I said, do kind of maybe two or three things well. Yeah. We have the first two lead platinum public school projects right. in Northern California, and we're extraordinarily proud of that. Yeah. And two of them. And, and some yeah. of our, a lot of our projects are, are serving communities that are, have traditionally been underserved. And we're also very proud of that. Yes, you're influencing uh, the children. I can't recall, I know the school and I know that it was a, uh, it's a physician or uh, instructor at University of Texas, Austin. And uh, I don't know the exact quote, but I can recall definitely captured the essence of what she said is that, uh, although she's a physician, that architects, and architecture have just as much impact on children's lives, if not more so than we as physicians. What do you you think of that? I know it's very, that's a profound statement, especially from a physician to state that, but she felt obviously that our architects have as much a say in the health, mental, probably even the physical health of children or those as, as a physician. I don't know if you might say that's a pretty, uh, yeah, it's a, and maybe how so, you know, what what may be, uh, I'm asking. Well, when one hopes that kids are healthy enough that they're spending more time in school rooms than in hospitals and doctor's offices, Mm -hmm. I suspect that for the unfortunate few who are chronically ill or seriously ill, physicians are probably (laughs) more important, but for your average healthy kid, you know, would think that they're spending half their waking life in, in classrooms, especially in. The moves are simple to to give them a humane classroom, give them balanced natural light, and you know let them open the windows uh, if it's a nice day, and maybe some nice volume and not a you know nine foot flat ceiling <laughs> and a, and some visual interest, and kind of get out of the way, and and it doesn't have to be a lot more than that. I mean, some of the 1950s schools that we are renovating. We're based upon that premise of uh, north light, bounce light from the south, some volume, and and those schools are pretty wonderful in some ways. They've been they've been allowed to deteriorate from neglect, and we we try to learn a lot from those you know kind of classic 1950s finger plan schools, and we work in those contexts a lot, and we we try not to we try to honor them. Uh, when we intervene and oftentimes we see campuses with generations of interventions and it, it was like, Oh, there's the 1980s postmodern one. And here's the one that the architect really, really wanted to be the person that everyone looked at. And where I think our talents and our sensibilities are more about fitting in graciously, maybe with a little flair here and there. <laughs> I like that. We're not without, yeah. we're not without ego. Um, but it, you know, especially at a place like Stanford, you don't build buildings that thump their chests. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, sure. it's about honoring the place and the yeah. mission. Yeah. And I think that suits our, our vision. Definitely. And you also talked an awful lot, well, quite a bit about learning. As much as you're quite accomplished and you've got a number, you know, platinum projects, lead projects, but you still have this sense of learning and uh, you share even with people that you work with. You say, yeah, we learned a lot from them. Is that kind of your DNA or the culture at CAW? Well, historically, we've been good at getting projects that are kind of just beyond our comfort zone. And so we, we're constantly pushing to the next kind of level of complexity, perhaps a different program type. About eight years ago, I got a hankering that what I really wanted to work on was performance spaces. 
any and all. Okay. Amphitheaters, theaters, music venues, theatrical venues. I'm just fascinated by that world. And uh, so, you know, over the course of that period, we've been successful at garnering those projects. And they carry a steep learning curve with them. They're highly technical. Um, they're, the aesthetics are incredibly important. And balancing that with the technical systems is a, an enormous coordination challenge. And so I feel like I'm constantly learning at my job. And we have a, we have a very capable staff, a lot of whom are, are relatively recently out of school. And so they're learning at a ferocious pace. At, yet some of them because of their specialized skills, are driving initiatives within the office that the elders uh, are, are, are learning from them. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, sure. We, we have some. With joy as well. So yeah, like, they, yeah. And, you know, we, we're revolutionizing our digital capabilities mm-hmm. as, as much as we can and, and trying to keep up with those developments. And they're, they're daunting. And, and let's just say that the 50-year-olds the in the office aren't leading that charge. It's the 25-year-olds really? okay. who, who understand that stuff. And so we're learning from them. Yeah. You, you, so you're also doing the, the Frost mm-hmm. and Greek theater yes. simultaneously. Yes. Yeah. yeah, share with us uh, the, uh, your experiences with both, you know, how it uh, came to be. Both thrilling projects okay. for us. And Greek was one of our first uh, performance spaces. It was, And it was um, uh, a seismic renovation project of the classic colonnade. Mm-hmm. If, you, if any of you have been there, it's the backdrop, the upstage wall. It was a very intricate uh, seismic project to, to leave no fingerprints on that historic facade. 1903, John Galen Howard, his first built work at, at Berkeley. And um, as part of that, any project you have to do, accessibility upgrades and uh, system upgrades, and the campus kind of cobbled together funding from different sources to address these things. And what we were able to do is really upgrade the performer's spaces, which are down below the, the stage, and... Um, uh, it turns out that even rock stars live on buses, and, <laughs> and if right. you if you yeah. give them a really nice shower, they're very grateful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you can. Okay. <laughs> it, it, it sounds silly, right? It, no, no. But uh, it's, it's, we it's we true. sort of simultaneously were doing this highly technical seismic project, and then you know, getting Bonnie Raitt a nice place to shower. <laughs> uh, That's great. And uh, it, that was our first project at UC Berkeley that was that came to through construction. So nothing like uh, high stakes and kind of a, a campus icon was the first one that we got to work on. And so it was one of those you know, quasi terrifying moments where, you, you know, again, you, you have to, you have to get this right. It's a, one of the, you know, two or three most iconic spaces, places on that campus. And, you know, we, we pulled it off. Yeah. We had a great, uh, great team, great structural engineer, David Marr, great leadership from the campus and, and now we're back putting in a new a brand new building to the north of uh, the historic core for much needed restroom and concessions again with the full accessibility mm-hmm. simultaneously working on frost amphitheater which is a extraordinarily different uh, amphitheater than sure. greek yeah. it's a big grassy bowl and we're putting in that that has been underused for the last 30 years because it's so difficult and expensive to get materials and production support in and out of there. There, there were no restrooms, performer amenities, 
no rigging or anything like that. And so you'd have to bring everything in on, on small trucks, yeah. not even big trucks because they can't get over the hill. So we're putting in a, a tunnel for rolling materials in, a loading dock, and, and then a, a, essentially a stage house building that will have green rooms and dressing rooms below, a big plaza on top, and then a stage canopy that will allow professional rigging and lighting and sound equipments to be yeah. installed. And they plan on having a concert series there that I think will rival the Greeks. Really? In terms of that, that level of uh, act. Yeah. It holds, it, both facilities hold you know, seven to 8,000 people. So those are, those are good sized crowds. And um, they will also be available for Stanford students and, and staff and faculty to kind of come in and turn the lights on and uh, <laughs> have a sound system that they can kind of turn on and not have to rent it. So student groups could use it or, or drama groups could put on a production there without a huge uh, expense. Excellent. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Loaves and Fishes Family Kitchen fights hunger in our local communities by providing food security to those who need it most. It serves more than 400,000 meals annually to men, women, and children from its San Jose location. You can help anytime in a number of ways by working in the kitchens preparing, serving, and cleaning up after meals, or by contributing food or non-food items, or by making a cash donation. For more information, visit loavesfishes.org. We're talking today with Chris Wozni a founding principal of CAW Architects. For more information, please feel free to visit www.cawarchitects.com. That's www.cawarchitects.com. Chris, I'll touch back on the, um, the Greek theater and Frost. The models that you're doing, and we were showing before we, we got on our show, you'd, modeling is quite extensive and it's a you're committed to it what what started that you know how you actually physically modeled your projects because it's uh it's not common in our digital age for sure it's a a little bit of a a lost art i think over the course of the life of this firm we would i would say we were occasional modelers we didn't have facilities for it and, and but we we built models of some of our projects and Inevitably, those projects, I think, were better for it, but we didn't have it in our uh, ingrained in our process where everyone gets uh, a, a physical model. And then about, I don't know, over the past seven, eight years, we've had the opportunity to, to partner with some very, very prominent and very, very fine national firms from back east, one, NEAD Architects from New York, and then more recently with William Ron and Associates out of Boston. And they're both, there's a reason why they work on a national and international scale is because they're extraordinarily talented and they also have a process that is is very sort of powerful and, and consistent. And one of the traits that both of those firms shared was they they model, of course, Everyone models digitally nowadays with with computer programs, even like as simple as SketchUp and Revit. And those are extraordinarily helpful, and those are still very much part of our stable of tools. But um, both of these firms, NEAD and, and WRA, would build models at every scale of the design process, from kind of conceptual design, even through design development, and even into construction documents to build physical models of details. And having kind of participated in that project as their kind of local helper, mm-hmm. 
we thought, wow, it, we see the power of this. We're kind of relentlessly trying to up our game here. So we invested a, a fair bit of money in a in shop and some equipment like laser cutters, but also plenty mm-hmm. of exacto knives and, yeah. and hand cutting <laughs> and a small shop. And now we have just we've taken our modeling to a ingrained it's ingrained in our process for virtually every project of any scale. And as you saw in, in our tour, there's mm-hmm. just boxes of iterations of models. And it's not like we just build one and that show the client and say, isn't that great? You know, we were on versions four, five, six of, of these things. And they, they start to right. develop over time and to become more and more refined as design solutions. And, and again, it's hand in hand with digital rendering and tr- traditional tools and even just traditional plan section elevation views. And we use all three together to try and take, first of all, from our point of view, study things over and over and over until they, they feel like they're coalescing. And then they're, they're remarkably good communication tools for clients. Yeah. Which are the clients look, do they look forward to them in, in a sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, Opening their birthday present. <laughs> a little yeah. bit of that. And, and we, we actually kind of play that up. We don't ever just walk in and plop the model on the table. <laughs> Sometimes if it's small enough, we'll hide it and then pull it out. <laughs> or we'll we'll put it under a, a sheet or something. We talk a little bit about what we're trying to accomplish and then mm-hmm. kind of show it to them. And there's a certain, um, as you said, kind of kid in a candy store aspect of people. And and. That cuts both ways. You have to you have to sort of resist the tendency to sort of just admire miniatures. There's a certain sort of like, oh, isn't that cute? Yeah. 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 And what you have to be careful of is is to not fall into the trap of making a beautiful model of a mediocre scheme because sometimes they're beguiling enough as miniatures that people like sort of fall in love with them. So we we try to make them first of all relentlessly to scale and and accurate. And not succumb to that sort of cuteness factor, <laughs> but people do respond, and they're very interactive. And especially if there's sometimes the models have iterations where you can take one thing out and put another in, and, and actually manipulate them. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen people get out of their seat more at a meeting and start to participate from the clients end as as those experiences, and they're they're extraordinarily valuable. And you know, occasionally the the client sort of makes the right move and says, did <laughs> yeah. you think of this? And, and, and start to shuffle things around. So we we're very happy with our, with our initiative. It's unclear how it's, you know, most architects charge extra for models that are traditionally sure. uh, yeah. and contractually uh, an additional service, which is a, a term. We have just decided that it's, going to be as much a part of our design process as drawing on yellow trace or you know putting it in revit that it's just how we do our process yeah and we're just the cost will be what it is and we'll try to get fees that support it um, yeah we, we we generally just try and do the best possible work we we can do and then at the end of the job we see how we did <laughs> yeah so it was really interesting you said uh, we're Clients actually get up off their seat and begin to engage more so than any other yeah. uh, other way. Uh, is that do you almost expect that now that you know once you put that once you display the model that you know people that may have been kind of uh, 
either surly or not involved or didn't didn't seem to care as much. None, of, of, our, sudden, none of our clients are surly. <laughs> <laughs> They're all perfect. <laughs> I love that. Great, great response. That they, they do actually want to engage in it. Is there's something again? It's a, I don't want to say childlike to diminish the importance and the impact of it, but there's something really visceral about yeah. actually seeing what it could be as opposed to. You know, obviously, your rendering you can get it BIM and and or even even virtual reality can come really close. But there's something about actually physically seeing it. It's kind of like getting a a happy birthday card from a grandmother or something. Like, no, I know it's that maybe it's not exactly. Depends but, on how much money. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come on, grandma. Yeah, you at least want to open it. Oh, there you go. Well, then that's relevant because you get up out of your seat to say, "I got a card. It's my birthday." Grandma mm-hmm. sent it, right? Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll say this, it doesn't always, you know, people don't always jump out of their seats. And, okay. <laughs> uh, it depends on, you know, how well we did. I will say that they there tends to be more enthusiasm about models than the, your typical PowerPoint presentation. Okay. You know, sure. I have not had too many people jump out of their seats during <laughs> those. Our... <laughs> they tend to sit politely in yeah. those. Yeah. I, I just look at it as an essential tool that, okay. that we need and that has an added benefit of being something that clients can very much respond to, relate to, manipulate. Um, yeah. We, we have, as I said earlier, we're blessed with, you know, very sophisticated clients, many of whom are architects. And so they'll, they'll get in and start, you know, playing with it. Yeah. You're constantly upgrading our game. Constantly. Uh, share constantly. with us, share with us how that either is, uh, is obviously your culture, it's your mantra, it's, it's uh, I know we've said it a couple times in our show already, is you're constantly upping your game. You know, I'm, I'm very proud of our, of our portfolio and our culture, and, I want, and, and yet I, I just see so many areas for improvement, and I want to continually just get better. I mean, literally just get better at our craft and our art. And with that will come... You know, go better and better projects, and we hope that that is a loop that reinforces itself. The more interesting the the program and the client and the and and the and the vital importance of a particular project just pushes us further. You know, there are firms. You know, we were talking about Bill Letty's interview earlier, mm-hmm. and you know, that's a firm I deeply admire. And and there's a, you know, there's eight to ten in the Bay Area that we we look at and we see. You know, those are the guys who we we want to be mentioned in the same breath as those guys. And I don't quite feel like we're quite there yet. And we're, we're a young firm. Humble. We're only 25 oh, years I'm old. You, Chris. And we, you know, we want to be considered in the conversation among the best design firms in the Bay area. Yeah. And then if we make that goal, then I'll set another one. <laughs> there you go. Share with some, uh, a story, if you will, of that, uh, how that mindset of constantly up in your game has benefited uh, you, the client, and uh, ultimately the people. If you're if you're at liberty to share a story where that really kind of came into play, and you're glad that it did, and so is everybody else. And if you don't have the story, I, I remember early on um, in 1998, we had done a handful of projects at Stanford on. I would say they're class B and class C okay. buildings, you know, just buildings that are uh, support players, okay. you know, dormitories, small dormitories there. And, and they were important projects and, and we were successful with them. And then we we were hired to renovate a, an absolutely gorgeous Bakewell and Brown design building student residence called Toyon Hall. 
Oh yeah, okay. and it's it's one of the most notable residential buildings on the campus, and it, it's just exquisite. And it was a very ambitious program that had to be done in two summer, ten week increments, and it was about oh, I guess twelve, fifteen million dollar project. So it was twice as big as anything we had done back then. And I remember the walking through, you, you would literally check out the keys and, and it would be spring break or Christmas break. We'd get in there when the students were gone and measure and do our due diligence. So we would literally check these keys out that, that it turns out if you lost one of those, they would charge you $30,000 because they'd have to rekey half the campus. Um, so, so literally walking around with these, these precious keys in this building that for the first time, I felt like we were get given a shot at the the really good stuff, and it was kind of like getting the keys to your dad's Porsche when you <laughs> you know you maybe just had your driver's license and you were at once thrilled and and then terrified. Yeah. And I just remember that project putting putting my shoulder behind that in a way that I can scarcely remember doing before of just knowing knowing it. And with our team here, we had a very capable and small team kind of mastering that project and, you know, jumping in scale and jumping in complexity and, and working on some very technical interventions in a beautiful historic space. And I think that instilled in us this this idea that we're going to get opportunities that are, are challenging to us because we've demonstrated that we will rise to the occasion. And what it's allowed us is to not do the same project over and over. And there are some architects who, I think, even when they do nice work, they tend to do the opportunities they're given, they get good at something, and then that reinforces itself. And we've always been able to kind of branch out, both in terms of scale and complexity, building type, technical uh, requirements, and and then rise to the challenge. And so it's it's a little bit of the carrot that we're we're constantly mm-hmm. chasing. Along with that is that's kind of getting the project right. There's a design component. With that, these greater and greater opportunities we've had, I think the design stakes are higher. And I, I have a saying around the office that I that I repeat probably more than I should to our <laughs> staff, which is the, the stakes couldn't be higher. Okay. And I, and I kind of believe that on a variety of levels. One is just something as basic as, as life safety and accessibility and the kind of the civil rights aspect of of accessibility. But then if you're working in, say, an underserved community and you're putting in a school, that's probably the the biggest change that is going to happen in that school district for a long time, and we'd better get it right. And if we're you know, working on one of the squares of the quilt out at Stanford, <laughs> we, we better not mess up that incredible tapestry there. Excellent. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU, 90.1 FM, Stanford. The Museum of American Heritage chronicles the evolution of technological invention from 1750 to 1950. MOA is an historic house and garden in downtown Palo Alto. The museum collects, preserves, and exhibits ingenious electrical and mechanical devices that have changed our lives. The museum is open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from 11 a.m. until 4 p.m., except during exhibit changeovers. If you'd like to know more or to become a member or volunteer, visit moah.org. We're talking today with Chris 
Wozniak, founding principal of CAW Architects. For more information, feel free to visit www.cawarchitects.com. That's www.cawarchitects.com. Chris, I like you. I love your choice of words is just terrific. I mean, I, I love them. Putting your shoulder behind a project. It's, it sounds like, you know, you're also thinking about projects from the people's vantage point and also putting, that's a very physical description of putting your shoulder into the project. So do you obviously roll up your sleeves as much as you think about how are we going to make this better or that space between that we talked about earlier? It just it seems like there's this constant evolution <laughs> And uh, if I'm reaching, say, hey, no, you're wrong. You know, this is who we are. But it just seems like there's this evolution, and it's always, like, even more fuller and richer than the last one. We're, you know, we aspire to ever-increasing, interesting, not necessarily, we're not interested in growing our firm to a, a huge size. We're not interested necessarily in just pure volume of work or size of projects. I think architects tend to mentally categorize projects uh, as in part of in our tribe there's a hierarchy of projects and at the top are art museums and and those level of you know star architect <laughs> works and i i, I kind of don't think that's in in our trajectory to be honest and then sort of below that are cultural facilities and uni- and then university stuff is pretty high up there and educational stuff is pretty high I think a lot of very fine architects kind of look down on public schools, as we talked about earlier, and I think we've kind of proven that could yeah. be that that could be rethought. And I'm happy that they're not in our market competing <laughs> with us because yeah. they're ferocious. Uh, <laughs> but you know, we're we're aspiring to kind of climb this ladder of a hierarchy of projects, and you know, I, I'm very proud that in some of our some of our projects, we're we're at that you know pretty high level of of, I don't know if prestige is the right word, but just importance. importance. A, pro- a project like Frost yeah. Amphitheater is really important to the life of the campus, and it's very important to get that space right, which was a kind of a precious bucolic respite from the, the, the kind mm-hmm. of the hard campus uh, feel. And um, just so, seeing the model of that just... Models. Models, <laughs> models, yes. Twenty seven models. Is or at least the, the, the most recent iteration yeah. of it was just oh my gosh, I can just envision how it's gonna as accurately as possible how that is. You know what's funny in that there was a huge concern with the scale of the canopy and how it mm-hmm. will fit at the bottom of this hollow, this bowl. And with even with all those models, we ended up doing what's called story poles and the contractor at considerable expense kind of mocked up that curve of that roof using kind of two by fours and, oh, and, really? and tape. And, and we got out there with our entire team and, and our donor, uh, Peter Bing, we made changes based upon that. It, it shrank a little bit. And in that case, we were balancing the needs of the place of getting that scale, right. And the contrasting demands of the, the people who do production, which you basically, they want more and more and more height for their rigging and you can almost not make it too high for them. And so we, really? we struck a compromise of, you know, 32 feet, I think to the bottom of where they could hang all their, their trusses and so forth. So it was a real balancing act. So the physical models, the digital models 
helped. And then we ended up mocking it up on site and it changed again. And then we remodeled it in our, in, in our shop here. So, How were you able to adjust so frequently? I mean, I mean is we it, work a lot. No, I mean, really, what, what other like, hobbies do you have or to do that uh, are not related, <laughs> if, it even, if it's even possible? And if, it's, if so, do they help you know, with this, this, that sort of adjustment level? Do my outside interests yes. help? Everyone needs to clear their mind. <laughs> how do you? How do you? If you, if you're at liberty to are, share. With us. I, I, I'm a bit of a, a busman's holiday. I, I like to build things. I spend a lot of time building, remodeling my house. <laughs> and when I finish that, our building here, we own it, and so I help build a lot of the furniture, the, our workstations, and some, even some of the heavier construction. I, I help build the some of the facilities you saw really for the mall. Jeez. So I uh I'm a, a frustrated carpenter. <laughs> frustrated. <laughs> a frustrated I would say mediocre carpenter, okay. but a spirited one. And uh so that's that's one of my hobbies. Uh in a in a quieter way I, I have yeah. a very a very nice garden at home that I go in and, you know, putter around. <laughs> that's the maybe the healthier hobby. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting because... And I'm a failed musician. I'm a failed <laughs> guitar player, so I, I plunk away at that. You have a favorite artist? Or uh, artist? Wilco. Oh, okay. Wilco, right. Jeff Tweedy. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is it just came to me while we're talking about about this and how a lot of architects, uh, they don't look, at, at least not favorably, they're just, just not... Education is not something they go into for whatever reason. And you've actually made it like an art you've turned it into an art which obviously affects everyone who's a, the students the faculty everyone in, involved is it remind reminds me of i don't know if you have a, f- a favorite football team but of bill walsh mm-hmm. of the coach former coach of the 49ers and obviously at stanford over there just a certain cadence you have with your uh, your language your projects how they're they're not common problem at least in my research they're not common throughout the education system in california the way you're building them, they're lead certified. Is it, it maybe I'm reaching? I mean, I know you're not a football coach, but but there's a there's a I think there's an innovation. I would use maybe uh, use Steve Kerr as a okay, as you, a good role model. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, yeah. I'm a How do you see any similarities? Basketball, okay, fan that I am a football fan, just mostly because of the toll it takes on the players. It's a yeah, yeah, topic. Uh, yeah, I totally uh, understand you there. Yeah, how so? I mean, how would you? Because you've got uh, you've got players, you've got to deal with media, you've mm-hmm. got to deal with obviously ownership, you've got to deal with uh, perhaps even if you use Steve Kerr, hopefully he's okay, but even his own health, you know. Yeah. So there's a lot of factors, and and still come out at the end of it being horrible title holder. And so, <laughs> I, I just love how articulate he is and how honest he is, and, and he'll uh, he'll tell it just the way it is, and he's extraordinarily intellectual guy. There was a great New Yorker piece this week on on his mom, who uh, I guess Steve's siblings are quite accomplished too. She said something like, "I have two PhD." Talking about her children, mm-hmm. I have two PhDs, an MBA, and an NBA. <laughs> and, uh, and she teaches at UCLA, and, and you know he had a, quite a family tragedy with his association yeah. with his dad. So I, he's just someone I, I admire, and I admire his leadership style. And I think there are certain you know, similarities of, of trying to mesh uh, a lot of talented people together that sometimes don't always have the same particular style. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, part of our job is wrangling. Uh, oftentimes, this room is full of twenty people, experts in their respective fields: a theater designer in that chair, and a landscape architect in that chair. And we're all we're all trying to get to the same place at the end. But they're competing competing demands of time and money and, and space. Mm-hmm. And so, part of our job, and it's. It's not, it's not, it's sort of behind the curtain, so to speak. And sometimes the clients, sometimes they participate, sometimes it's best if they, they don't see it. You know, it can be a, a food fight. Uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, sure. I like how you went through all of that and then you, it, it culminated in a, it could be a food fight. <laughs> it, it can get, it's, it's a messy process and it, it, it takes that kind of uh, will of somebody usually on our team and our very, very capable staff of putting their shoulder and their intellect in there and just their sheer force of will behind it to plow through these uh, issues of competing demands and, and hold on to what's precious in the project. And there's yeah. always a few things that we have to just kind of hold on to with dear life and and not compromise on if we, you know, unless, unless all hell breaks loose. <laughs> Chris, is there anything else that you'd like to share that we may not have shared in the in our uh, in our show? Anything else that we may have you'd like to share with with the audience? Yeah, the, the, it was, there's an interesting. We had an interesting revelation a year or two ago. We we're looking at kind of a, we were doing a forecast and of all the projects that we had in hand and what we had in kind of in the queue and what we were chasing, and we realized that of you know thirty or forty current active clients that were exactly one for-profit entity. And they happened to be a concert promoter um, in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. a prominent one. And suffice to say, they're not your typical corporate client. And so in a sense, they're, you know, they're part of the, they, they sort of fit right in with all of our other clients who are either school districts or nonprofits, uh, do-gooders, tree huggers, uh, <laughs> We work with local churches and Buddhist temples up and down the peninsula, and we're doing a children's museum and zoo here in Palo Alto and working for a group called Abilities United also here that help folks with developmental issues. And we realized that kind of our both our clients and ourselves, we've kind of voted with our feet, and it was never a conscious choice to sort of get into the out of the for-profit world, but it seems where our sensibilities and talents have landed us and, and it's people have tended to find us and we found them. And I thought that was a pretty profound yes. bit of information that, that we hadn't considered. And I think we're, we're well suited to that world. Excellent. Chris, it's been terrific having you as our guest today. We've been honored truly. Oh, this honor's all mine. Thank oh, you for, thank for you. the interest in our work. Thank you. I hope you consider being on our show in the near future. This is superb, really. Yeah. Give us five <laughs> years to get better. <laughs> Dear Chris, I love that. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Christopher Wozni, principal of CAW Architects. Chris directs the firm's higher education work, including more than 60 projects at Stanford University, UC Berkeley, and UC Santa Cruz. Chris also relishes the challenges of finding appropriate and distinctive design responses within established campuses. His work includes large-scale renovations and adaptive reuse projects on historic buildings as well as new buildings. Chris is also on the faculty of the Architectural Design Program 
at Stanford University. For more information, feel free to visit www.cawarchitects.com. That's www.cawarchitects.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, also on location throughout the San Francisco Bay Area, and is a production of KZCU Radio. Today, the recording engineer is Darlene Franklin, Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Caleb B. Smith and Akshay Jaggi. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Diara. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu.
Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of 168,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of the modern architect.